Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. The topic of my talk is the compatibility of Catholicism and American democracy a half century after the JFK election. So it's going to be historical. We're going to be comparing uh, the, the situation of a Catholic candidate for president in 1960 and with the present day, and uh, that's, so that's the broad structure of what I'm going to be doing. The, the paper itself, the talk itself, is divided into three parts. Part one is the compatibility of Catholicism and American democracy as the situation was in 1960. So that's where I'm going to start. I'll alert you when I get to the second part, okay? Fifty-six years ago, John F. Kennedy was the Catholic uh, Democratic nominee for president of the United States. Now, there had never been a Catholic president, and the one Catholic nom previous Catholic nominee of a major party Governor Al Smith of New York in 1928 had been defeated amidst considerable public controversy about whether a Catholic could be elected president and widespread assertions that Catholics should not be elected because his Catholic commitments were not compatible with governing a largely Protestant country. In particular, doubts were raised whether his Catholic faith commitments might make it impossible for him to keep his constitutionally required pledge to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. That was the Al Smith election, 1928. Now, these same doubts and questions were made against the Kennedy candidacy, and they were not made by socially marginal or obscure people. I want to give you a little bit of background now. Until the uh, Kennedy's election in 1960, and the religious freedom documents of the Second Vatican Council in 1965, the opinion was widely held that democracy and Catholicism were mutually unsafe and even incompatible. This view existed on both sides, and in serious and thoughtful, as well as low and bigoted representatives. But I'm gonna focus on the serious and thoughtful. From the Catholic side, one thinks of 19th and 20th century papal encyclicals, which associated democracy with the French Revolution, anti-clericalism, political liberalism, public atheism, authority rooted in will rather than in transcendent standards of right, and granting religious liberty as a matter of right to those whom the church regarded as schismatics, heretics, and infidels. It may sound strange to you to think that that was once Catholic teaching, but it was. And uh, it was one of the great achievements of uh, people like uh, Jacques Maritain and uh, John Courtney Murray to change that opinion and persuade the church uh, to uh, a, a more sympathetic view of democracy and, and religious liberty. Um, among the, the serious and thoughtful from the side of American democracy, there were also those who were doubtful of the compatibility of democracy and Catholicism. One thinks of public questioning by respected Protestant leaders during the 1960 campaign. Is it reasonable to assume that a Roman Catholic president would be able to withstand altogether 
the, the determined efforts of the hierarchy of his church to gain further funds and favors for its schools and institutions and otherwise break the wall of separation of church and state. Now that was a, a, a statement from the National Council of Citizens for Religious Freedom published in the New York Times and it was uh, the, among the prominent signatories were Reverend Dr. Norman Vincent Peale and Reverend Dr. Billy Graham. So you see these weren't marginal people, these were important people, socially prominent. Alright, now um, as, a, as serious thought, this view that, that we just read the quotation of is rooted in democratic political thought of dissenting Protestantism, found most relevantly for us, for us Americans, in John Locke's Letter Concerning Toleration, 1689, James Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments, in 1785, and Thomas Jefferson's Statute on Religious Freedom, Again, 1785. In this view, which I want to state, you know, is a serious intellectual view. In this view, both Catholicism's foreign allegiance and its understanding of conscience as subject to church and ultimately papal instruction are regarded as incompatible with American democracy's dissenting Protestant assumption that there is no higher guidance in matters of faith and morals than individual conscience. Okay? Now, pre-1960 formulations of the alleged incompatibility of Catholicism and American democracy were more policy-specific, but no less deeply rooted in an idea of democracy decisively influenced by the idea of the sovereignty of conscience. In this context, Catholicism was said to be incompatible with democracy because of uh, four or five very specific policy differences. Number one, the Catholic Church had sided with the fascist, fascist side and against the democratic side in the Spanish Civil War. That's number one. Number two, its parochial schools were intrinsically inimical to national unity. But also, in addition, the church wanted to secure public funding for them. So that's the third, second allegation. Number three, the church was intolerant. Number four, because the church claimed infallibility for itself and denied spiritual freedom, liberty of mind, or conscience to its members. And fifth and lastly, because of the hierarchical or clerical structure of the church. For all these reasons, the church was said to be the foe of progress and hostile to democracy. All right? Now that's the, the, the situation as it was in 1960. Now, uh, the, the second part of my talk is how JFK handled the argument uh, that a Catholic should not be president. That's what I'm going to talk about now. Okay? In one political sense, the fear that Catholicism was incompatible with American democracy was laid to rest, or maybe laid aside, or at least played down by the election of John Kennedy. But it is unclear how broad or deep that settling of the issue went. And I'll give you one post-1960 event which reveals that lack of clarity. And that was the 1991 nomination of Clarence Thomas to the Supreme Court. In a New York Times op-ed piece, the prominent law professor, Professor Lawrence Tribe, described as, quote, 
an extraordinary theological argument, unquote, Thomas's approval of the statement in the Declaration of Independence that the right to life is God-given, and hence that this Constitution could not be neutral on abortion. At the same time, Virginia Governor Douglas Wilder, and now please look at quotation uh, num number two, said for publication, how much allegiance is there in Clarence Thomas to the Pope? Syndicated columnist Ellen Goodman provided a more genteel 1990s form reformulation of that old issue. That, that issue, of course, goes back to the 16th century. Uh, please look at quotation number three. The concern, Ellen Goodman said, is no longer the Pope as such. The problem is now the Catholic Church's institutional hierarchy, which violates the separation of church and state by instructing its members on church moral doctrine and telling Catholic officeholders how to vote on one issue, abortion. All right, now then, it seems then that the sense in which the Kennedy election laid to rest the question of Catholicism's compatibility with American democracy is not final. Something has not been resolved, and I'm going to try to figure out what that might be. Kennedy's election, in one sense, laid to rest the Al Smith problem. It showed that it was possible for someone who publicly professed being a Catholic to be elected president. But it remained a question what the price for Catholicism might be for a Catholic to stand for president. Now, in 1960, Kennedy seemed to sever his connection between his religious convictions, at least as taught by the teaching authority of his church, and his political positions. He did so at least in cases where official Catholic teaching or Catholic interests might be inconsistent with his political convictions or interests. Now, let me give you some background. 13 years before 1960, Kennedy had said publicly, quote, there is an old saying in Boston that we get our religion from Rome and our politics from home, and that is the way most Catholics feel about it. All right, that's 13 years before the election. In, in the 1960 campaign, he went so far as, he, as to deny, now look at quotation number four, he went so far as to say, I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I do not speak for the Catholic Church on issues of public policy, and no one in that church speaks for me. Now, Kennedy opposed the official Catholic Church side on two, what I'm going to call, Catholic interest issues in the 1960 campaign. Not one, federal aid to parochial schools, and secondly, appointing an ambassador to the Vatican. These were both hot topics. But his being on the uh, anti-Catholic side, or the, non, the, the side anti-Catholic uh, political interests, um, showed that he spoke in earnest when he said that the responsibility of the office holder is to make decisions on these questions, public issues, on the basis of the general welfare as he sees it, even if that's not in keeping with prevailing Catholic opinion. 
Now, he made one elaborate and lengthy uh, public address on this issue, and it was to the Houston Ministerial Association on September 12, 1960, and I've given you the quotations, quotation number five on the handout. It's long, but it's worth reading. I believe in an America where the, quest, where the separation of church and state is absolute, where no Catholic prelate would tell the president, should he be a Catholic, how to act, and no Protestant minister would tell his parishioners for whom to vote, where no church or church school is granted any public funds or political preference and where no man is denied public office merely because his religion differs from the president who might appoint him or the people who might elect him. I believe in an America that is officially neither Catholic, Protestant, nor Jewish, where no public official either requests or accepts instructions on public policy from the Pope, the National Council of Churches, or any other ecclesiastical source where no religious body seeks to impose its will directly or indirectly upon the general population or the public acts of its officials, and where religious liberty is so indivisible that an act against one church is treated as an act against all. Whatever issue may come before me as president, on birth control, divorce, censorship, gambling, or any other subject, I will make my decision in accordance with these views in accordance with what my conscience tells me to be the national interest and without regard to outside religious pressures or dictates. And no power or threat of punishment could cause me to decide otherwise. But if the time should ever come, and I do not concede any conflict to be even remotely possible, when my office would require me to either violate my conscience or violate the national interest, then I would resign the office and I hope any conscientious public servant would do the same. Okay. That's the crucial quote. Now, a generation after JFK's election, in 1984, then-Governor, New York Governor Mario Cuomo, went further in the direction pointed by Kennedy in severing the teachings of his church from his political life by publicly supporting the legal right to abortion while saying that personally he believed abortion was wrong. In many other matters, notably regarding the public support for the poor, Governor Cuomo's uh, arguably acted in accordance with Catholic social teachings. But he apparently thought himself prohibited from acting publicly on Catholic teachings when they contradicted secular morality. As a public official, he thought himself required to approve, support, and even fight for public policies which he said his religiously grounded moral convictions told him were wrong. All right, so that's the end of the second part of my talk about how Kennedy handled the, the, the Catholic problem in his 1960 election. The third part of my talk is how the present, the present situation has changed and how those changes might affect the compatibility of Catholicism and American democracy. Now, I'm going to focus on three ways in which the American social context has changed since 1960. And the first important change is that in 1960, America's public culture was substantially Protestant. That is to say, generically Christian. 
This means, for example, that official prayer in public schools was permitted, acceptable, and even in some places encouraged and required. So was official reading of the Bible in public schools. The 1962 Supreme Court decision that ruled school prayer unconstitutional invalidated a New York State requirement that teachers begin each day with a non-denominational prayer. Similarly, in the next year, 1963, the Supreme Court decision that ruled school Bible reading unconstitutional invalidated a Pennsylvania state law that required, quote, at least 10 verses from the Holy Bible to be read without comment at the opening of each public school day. Now, today, Protestantism, which provided public support for such public support for religion as prayer and Bible reading in public schools, no longer dominates our public culture. Instead, our public culture has become predominantly secular. Now, this change has meant less support, less public support for religion in public institutions like schools and in public institutions in general, and the removal of both official prayers and Bible reading from those institutions were important steps in that transformation. Now, there's an additional dim dimension of what less public support for religion in public institutions means today. And I want to illustrate it by an experience that I had recently at Christmas time when a friend and I attended a concert by the choir of the Methodist Church in DeKalb, Illinois, where we live. That choir has a long history of stirring and inspiring uh, Christmas concerts. This time, as they sang O Holy Night, I recalled that I had sung O Holy Night as part of the Christmas program at the small town Iowa public school I attended in the mid-1950s. I was in seventh or eighth grade. As I listened to this moving hymn, it occurred to me that it is doubtful that one would be permitted to sing that hymn today at a public school Christmas program. It is even increasingly doubtful that one could still publicly call it a Christmas program. The secularism that increasingly dominates our public life would require it to be called something else, like a holiday program. Anyway, this contemporary Christmas story is meant to show that a change from a Protestant to a secular public culture was not limited to prohibiting prayer and Bible reading in public institutions. And I trust that you younger folks who did not live through that change have nevertheless had your own experiences with the generally secular nature of our public culture today, and the foregoing examples have, are merely meant to help you to know that it was not always so. So that's the important change number one between 1960 and today. Now, important change number two, and that is that since the 1960 election, in, in, the, in the 1960 election, there were almost no issues on the national political agenda which involved conflict between the Protestant public culture and Catholic moral teachings. The moral issues that were later to emerge on the national political agenda, and which would be in conflict with Catholic moral teachings, I'm talking about, of course, abortion, the life issues generally, and um, the, the definition of marriage, those were not yet public political issues. Let me talk first about abortion. For example, abortion was still a crime in most states in 1960. To be specific, in 1973, when the Supreme Court found a constitutional right uh, to abortion, 
in the Constitution, abortion was prohibited entirely in 30 states and legal in limited circumstances like pregnancy resulting from rape or incest in 20 other states. All right, let's take another example, the, the, the definition of marriage. In 1960, the definition of marriage was still almost entirely a state matter. And that definition was, in any case, not essentially contested in American culture. The undermining of that definition by the divorce revolution, which began only in the 1960s, and the subsequent intensifying of that revolution by the no-fault divorce in 1970s and 80s had not yet taken place. Now, to illustrate this point concretely, let me say this, that in 1960, divorce was legal in almost all states. However, it was sufficiently rare in practice that growing up in rural Iowa in the 1950s, I knew only one kid whose parents were divorced. Now, when I tell my students that today, they do not, don't believe me. So to try to persuade them that my experience was, uh, was valid, I show them the, 19, the data from the 1960 United States Census, which in 1960, I was the age most of my undergraduates are now, approximately. That census reports that 2.2 out of every 1,000 Americans said they were divorced. 2.2 out of 1,000. Does not such a figure support the view that divorce was so rare in 1960 as to be marginal to the national public culture? Now, as I said, I knew only one kid growing up whose parents were divorced. I've talked to people of my generation who tell me they did not know anyone whose parents were divorced. Given my own experience and the census data that I just cited, I don't find that difficult to believe. They might have grown up in a Catholic ghetto or something, or some equivalent. But aside from the census evidence from 1960, I do not know how to make that claim plausible to a young audience. As I say, my students don't believe me when I tell them that, um, and because they can't imagine an, Amer an America or that there ever was an America like that. Third important change since 1960 that's worth remarking on now, although I'll come back to it later. In the years preceding 1960, there was some recognizably anti-Catholic sentiment in American society, such as I mentioned in regard to the Al Smith election. But that anti-Catholic sentiment had no national political focus, and it hadn't had any since the 1928 Al Smith election. In addition, such anti-Catholic sentiment as surfaced in the 1960 election was not, and I want to stress this, was not as it would be today concerned with moral disagreements. All right, now I'm going to try to summarize these three points for you. The first important change is that today we have become a more, sec more a secular than a Protestant country. And that means less support for religious uh, practices in public context. Concrete evidence of that change are Supreme Court decisions beginning in 1962, banning officially sponsored prayer, Bible readings, and other religious observances in public schools. The contemporary challenge to the Little Sisters of the Poor, in which the government is attempting to impose on those institutions 
public policies that are contrary to those institutions' religious convictions should be understood as the secular public culture intensifying this decline in public support for religious freedom. Second important change is that the national political agenda has developed in ways that nationalize some moral disagreements between the new secular public morality, which has come to prevail since the 1960s, and some moral teachings of the Catholic Church. The wedge issue for that change, of course, was the Supreme Court's 1973 holding that the Constitution guarantees a national right to abortion. Now that, that so was the wedge issue, but it had been prepared eight years prior to 1973 by the courts finding a national constitutional right to artificial contraception for married couples. And then in 1972, that right was applied to unmarried people as well. These court these cases overturned state laws prohibiting or restricting the sale of contraceptives. Can you imagine that there was a time in our country when state laws prohibited the sale of contraceptives? And that's what the court struck down in preparation to the finding of the national right to abortion. And then finally, in only last year, the court nationalized a redefinition of marriage for the entire nation. Now, all of these now nationalized moral disagreements were formerly dealt with in different ways in different states. Now, the third important change is that this nationalization of these moral disagreements both intensifies the secular Catholic disagreement and gives it an ongoing political focus. If these moral disagreements had been left to state governments, then the citizens of different states could have had an unlimited right to abortion or no right to abortion or a right to abortion under certain circumstances. But nationalization of these moral conflicts means that there is little or no room for handling these disagreements in a diversity of ways. And the analog here, for those of you who are students of history, is the development in the 19th century Supreme Courts nationalizing the slavery issue in the Dred Scott case of 1857. The nationalizations intensified the conflict over slavery with consequences we all know. Now the post-1960 nationalization of divisive moral issues makes it very difficult and perhaps impossible for candidates for president, president uh, to, to uh, deal with them by arguing to allow each state to pursue its own path. Now how might that in, in particular affect a Catholic candidate for president today? Well, it probably makes it all but impossible to be both faithful to the church's moral teaching and to be a plausible candidate for president, at least on the moral matters such as abortion and marriage, in which church moral teaching is at odds with the now nationalized morality of public secularism. Maybe the following will help make clear why. Had someone asked JFK in the 1960 uh, election campaign, Mr. Kennedy, what would be your administration's policies regarding abortion and the definition of marriage? He could have answered prudently, I would leave it where the Constitution left it, namely, to each state to do as they saw fit. Abortion is constitutionally not a national issue, and I will not use my personal opinion about it to sow discord in the national body politic. 
In other words, he could have avoided the divisive moral issue and thereby issues and thereby avoided intensifying the political conflict which the court's nationalizing has produced. Obviously, the option is to avoid intensifying these divisive moral issues is no longer available to a present-day Catholic candidate because the court has made it a national issue in precisely the way the 1857 court made slavery into a national constitutional issue. So future Catholic candidates for president will probably have to speak publicly to abortion as a national constitutional issue. But I do not see how that issue, as well as the other hot-button moral issues which separates Catholic moral teaching in particular from secular morality, can avoid doing to a future campaign what one candidate's style has done to the current presidential primaries, namely, so dominate media coverage as to drive out serious discussion of other substantive issues on which there might be some possibility of agreement among the diversity of public opinion. Now, the foregoing presentation of what a present-day or future Catholic candidate for president would face assumes something that really, of course, cannot be assumed, and it assumes that such a candidate will take as his own and defend the church's teaching on these hot-button, morally divisive issues. And as we saw, JFK had already separated himself from Catholic church teaching, at least in the abstract, by saying that church teaching did not decide for him what he would try to do as president. JFK apparently began the practice of Catholic candidates promising not to follow Catholic church moral teaching uh, moral, excuse me, Catholic Church teaching in fulfilling their political responsibilities. That is, a, a not that is not insignificant. Now, in today's political climate, the Catholic candidates opposing the secular public culture's hot-button moral public policy issues would probably doom his candidacy. So what could be possible for such a candidate? The overwhelming temptation would be to be a Catholic in name but follow secular morality on these hot-button issues. There are current Catholic office holders who seem to do that. While I will not mention any names, I would describe them as, in, as a category as liberal Catholics. What makes them liberal is not merely a generous attitude towards spending on social programs for the poor. That, of course, is compatible with and may be required by Catholic social teaching. And it does, that notion of liberal does overlap with what liberal means in contemporary political alignments. What I would say makes the liberal Catholic office holders I'm describing liberal, as distinguished from simply being Catholic, is their support for abortion rights and the redefinition of marriage. All right, I'm going to conclude now. I'm not going to conclude that it is impossible for a Catholic who faithfully defends church teachings on these hot-button moral issues to be a candidate for president in the current secular public culture. I don't know that. Nor am I going to say that it's impossible for such a candidate to be elected. I don't know that either. But it seems clear that the compatibility problem of Catholicism and American democracy has become more intense compared to the situation that prevailed when John Kennedy both ran for and was elected president. But I think the least that one can say today is that contemporary American public opinion, 
formed by the secular public culture that came into being largely in the half century since the JFK election could not be presumed to support a faithful Catholic candidate who would defend church teaching on these hot button issues. But a faithful Catholic candidate might learn from the success of those who replaced the pub Protestant public culture of a half century ago with the secular public culture which followed it. And it replaced it, of course, by bringing into being national constitutional rights to contraception, to abortion, and the redefinition of marriage. For the most part, these results did not come about by presidential candidates running for office and promising them. They came about largely by presidents getting elected predominantly on other agendas and then nominating Supreme Court justice, justices who would find those rights in the Constitution. To illustrate, President Nixon did not run for office advocating a right to abortion. However, he nominated for the Supreme Court both Chief Justice Warren Burger, who presided over the Supreme Court, which established that right, and Justice Harry Blackmun, who wrote the court's majority opinion in that case. Recalling this pattern of how our opponents succeeded, we might consider the worldly wisdom that Christ praises in St. Luke's Gospel. And now look, look at quotation number six, um, the last quotation. This is the parable of the, un, of the unjust steward. And the master commended that dishonest steward for acting prudently. For the children of the world are more prudent in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. Now, remembering Christ's praise of this worldly prudence, a candidate for president who might wish to modify or undo the constitutional manifestations and underpinnings of the secular public culture could try to get elected on other agendas than the hot button issues and thereafter nominate and of course use political capital to get confirmed justices who would mitigate or overturn previous court decisions on those issues. How might that work? Well, in closing, let me try this. Both the Catholic Church's social teaching and its teaching on environmental stewardship, and I'm thinking, of course, here of Pope Francis's recent encyclical, Laudato Si. Both these share a common ground with secular public culture. Feeding the poor, providing homes for the homeless, and caring for our common home does not divide Catholic moral teaching from the prevailing public culture. So a Catholic candidate for president could try to focus on those commonalities and to at least avoid focusing on the divisive hot-button moral issues. He could avoid doing something about those issues until it came time to nominate Supreme Court justices. Such a strategy might be a way, and I stress might be a way, for a faithful Catholic to stand for the office of president. As to whether it would work, I leave for you to conjecture. Well, that's all I know. Hope that I said something there that will interest you enough to engage me in conversation. And thank you for your rapt attention. Faith and Reason Podcasts. 
New Media for the New Evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.